everybody, and welcome to today's episode of Podcast Extra. This is episode number 226. Today is Tuesday, like every other podcast day. It's sunny outside, I think, or maybe it's cloudy. We're in a room with no windows, Andrew. How would you know? Because when it I got It could have changed, up, Andrew. Yeah, probably. Well, there you go. There's Here's another example of your dogmatic assertions. I don't know what you said. <laughs> what? <laughs> so we have around the table, the, obviously the... The clear, unmistakable voice of Dr. Jeff Bucknam. Hello. We also have Andy Steiger. The incredibly gifted. Bald. Good to be here. Thank you for saying Thanks, that, I Andy. I appreciate that. We have Paul Siemens. He's one of our teaching associates. Looking at my reflection in Andy's bald head. <laughs> and we're sharing a microphone, and our faces are very close. How old are you, Paul? 39. And you drink hot water, why? It's green tea. And it was hot water. I looked at it. And I tasted some. I would let you taste. You t- did you really okay. taste some? Did it's, you? I'm it's, done. It's hot water. You took a swig of that? I did. What I do, ha- do you just go around and take people's <laughs> drinks? They're sitting <laughs> on the table. You just grab them and you drink them? What do you think happened to your Diet Coke? It was a Diet or Pepsi. Diet Pepsi. Well, I don't know. <clears throat> there you go. We also have Ezra Okoti. <laughs> hey. And the silent but deadly Matthew Crocker, who's just quietly, respectfully nodding. Good. Well, uh, the Blue Jays are doing great. Just by way of Who update. Who cares? Oh. You have a Blue Jays hat and a Blue Jays shirt on today. Are those the only kinds of Blue Jays uh, outfit stuff that you have on today? There are other Blue Jays uh, <laughs> stuff on you? That's for me to know and you to think about. So, Andrew, you were. Uh, so, why were the Blue Jays celebrating the other day? Like, it was, a, it, it was like they won the World Series and. It's about and as they're, close as they're going to get. They won nothing. That's what right. did they win? They they cl- they made it to the playoffs, okay? Wow. <laughs> a- the American League East is what they won. Wow. Which is a big deal if you haven't made it to any postseason sport. Uh, on TSN on TSN the other day, they had a special that was celebrating looking at the Blue Jays pennants over the years. It was short. <laughs> <laughs> they're doing they're doing good this year though. So, so they're, they're in the playoffs, and they're going to be playing against which team? They are playing, uh, I believe, tomorrow. Against? They are playing. That's when you the... Put, you put me you, on the wait, spot. You, you don't, don't actually know? know who their team that they're you playing is. You don't know. You have their hat and their sweater on. And you don't know. And you don't no, know. because I didn't, I didn't check uh, yesterday. They're playing Texas. So you think that they're going to... do that. On Thursday, Friday. You think that they're going to beat Texas? Your prediction, Andrew Gulovich, right now... I won't on say. Tuesday, October, what is it, 4th? No, 6th. 6th. October 6th, you're predicting a Blue Jays win, a series win? I don't know. Well, I hope so. Well, Wait, that's a diehard fan right there. Way to be committed. I, you can't put all your eggs in that basket, though. In the Blue Jays basket. <laughs> you can't. Why not? Because you can't put your te- your, all your eggs in any basket, any team. It doesn't matter. Where are you Chelsea, getting Chelsea, Arsenal? It doesn't matter. Where are you getting your eggs from? Uh, Jesus. Okay. They're Bible eggs. <laughs> no, so. you can't. Honestly, you're right. It sports is a is, is a nasty, nasty beast. It is, and they will it will beat you down yep. after a while. Seahawks tried their best to lose last night, but they they're not even good enough to do that. I hey. heard something about they 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 broke some NFL rule about batting the ball. Oh, I didn't yeah. watch the game, but oh yeah, but we get. We, if it's a Monday night in Seattle and it ends on some crazy play, we always get the benefit of the doubt. Of Monday, Monday nights. But if it's a Sunday night in February, <clears throat> yeah, we lose. 
on the last play of the game, usually because we didn't run it. Wow, someone's still bitter. Yeah, yeah so um, bitter. <laughs> so the Blue Jays start their playoffs when again? Tomorrow? Thursday. Oh, Thursday's Tuesday. Tuesday. Yeah. Okay. So, so by the Thursday. time some people are listening to this podcast, they will already know the fate of the first Blue Jays game. Mm. Of which Andrew says Blue Jays will win? There's no way to know. Oh, come I'll on. Ask me Thursday. Oh. What kind of fan are you? No, no kidding. No kidding. I'm a realist. I'm oh, a realist. So which means they will basically tank. But I'll tell you what. If they win, I have a Blue Jays towel, like a beach towel. I'll wear it as a cape. On Friday. Okay. If they yeah. win. If, if they, they win. win. Oh, I'll done. come to the office Friday. It's a series though, right? It's not just a one game thing. It's, that's correct. They're in the series. Best of? Seven. Okay. So. <laughs> Anyways, let's move on. Let's let's talk about real stuff like, like Paul's uh, digestion issues in your hot water. No, I'm kidding. We won't do that. We have a couple of questions. We have a lot of stuff to go through. It is hot water, right? It's green tea. <laughs> I, I was not. It's a green mug. I was not lying. No, it is green tea. I saw him with. Green well, now tea. that we've solved the green tea, let's uh, let's get <laughs> okay, to the questions. Let's, let's get, get to the questions. questions. Okay, so can you guys elaborate, please, for me? Can someone open up Matthew eighteen if you haven't already? There you go. You're already there. Eighteen, verse eighteen and nineteen. Paul, you want to read it? Yes, I do. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. And these are the words of? Jesus. Perfect. So the question is, what is meant, first of all, ask this in two parts, what is meant by binding and loosing, loosening or loosed? Well, I think if we look at the context of this passage, if you take it back to, even if you just go back to verse 15, Uh, It looks at, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And it goes through the the order of church discipline. And then when you get to 18, it says, truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. So if you take it in context, when we are dealing with somebody who has sinned against us, when we are taking it to the church and it's dealt with in the correct order, as as stated here in these verses, then heaven recognizes that. Well, by heaven, you, you mean Jesus. Yes. Yeah. And I'm getting that um, from verse 20. There are two or three are gathered in my name. There I am. There I am among them. So <clears throat> Jesus is essentially giving his, his uh, stamp of approval to the church when it exercises discipline over one of its members or a professing believer <clears throat> who has sinned against another but is unrepentant about that sin after being confronted several times. So this, this whole passage is about, about uh, church discipline, all the way from verse 15 to verse 20. Verse 20 is notoriously misinterpreted. Mm-hmm. We've shared it before here, yep. where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. We, we often take it as a... As a uh, Our prayers are more powerful. Yeah. Well, it's funny, actually, uh, somebody told me the other day that they were at a church that was called... The, 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 their tagline was, like, where two or three are gathered... There, I'm in their midst. I thought I just I giggled when they told me that because I was like, "Oh, it must have a lot of church discipline going on there." Like they had it on all their posters and right. stuff. So the, that's just a it's just an often misinterpreted text. I mean, the church that puts that on their posters and is saying, "Hey, this is a justification for why it's really important why we gather together," but they're misinterpreting what mm-hmm. it is meant here by the two or three who are 
who who are actually, if you look earlier in the mm-hmm. passage, the two or three I mentioned is those who are the witnesses to the to the crime. Right, and that's with, with a lot of you know single verses, even that get sent in or that you read on your own or that are on bumper stickers. Is often we just sort of single them out and, and we put them all over stuff without understanding, which is what we tried to accomplish this this summer was um, clarifying some of these things. So there's a the, so I preached a sermon on this that was only preached in mission, and then God turned the lights out in Abbotsford the weekend I was supposed to preach that text here. So if you want to go on our website, you can actually find a sermon. I think. I think there's one on there. There would be, yes. Yeah, about Matthew 18. Uh, Perfect. Yeah, from the last weekend in August. So the second part to this question, now that we've got some of the wording out of the way and, and sorted through. So if the question is, if two Christians agree on something, but it goes against biblical teaching, what, what do we do then? Does that apply? Does it... No. What do we do? Well, no, given the context, the, no. Yeah, Paul was going to jump in there too. No, right? Yeah, when you look at the context, I mean, we kind of we kind of answered the second part already. Um, just because two Christians agree on something, this this passage isn't talking about anything in particular. It's not even talking about uh, two people getting together to pray, and we we should actually be thankful about that because that means when we pray alone, God still hears our prayers. Or if there are five of you who are praying, right? Right. It's not just so, two or three. Yeah, yeah exactly. So when we when we look at this, no, it it's it's referring to church discipline. So just by two Christians agreeing on something, um, if it goes against biblical teaching, it definitely uh, this does not apply here. So if church elders, church leaders have gone through this process of of rebuking somebody in the congregation who's unrepentant, and their conclusion then appears to be non-biblical, how would we? Who then would would kind of call them on that? That the leadership. Well, the scriptures would would take precedent over them. There are there are certainly cases where um, where elders of local churches have sinned and are being sinful in their judgments about these sorts of things, um, and so certainly that would be that that would not be uh, Christ's will there. This passage though is very important though to hear because our our inclination is to say yeah those pastors and leaders are always sinning every time they make any kind of judgment about these matters. This passage is actually saying, don't try to divorce Jesus from his, from his, the leadership of his church when it comes to matters of church discipline, that, that, which is common for somebody who's being disciplined to do. <clears throat> they think, well, I, I'm not, I, you know, th- this isn't what God says. There's God's on my side. He's not on the side of the church. Well, a- actually, Jesus is saying, yeah, I am. I'm on the side of the church here. Wherever two or three are gathered, there I am in their midst, right? Whatever you bind on earth is be bound in heaven. So, Good. yeah, it's, a, it's actually quite a strong, strong word about the authority of the local church, mm-hmm. which, I mean, we keep talking about because it's the authority of the local church is greater than the authority of the state. Just think about that. So, I mean, the authority of the local church extends to things having to do with eternal life as opposed to, uh, you know, whether or not you're going to be spend some time in jail in the next little while. Ezzy, were you going to jump in? What, what he said. Yeah, what he said. Good. What he said is true. Awesome. So we've got that solved once and for all. Good. I like that extra dose of Kenyan accent. That was good. Ezra, do you how many how many languages do you speak? Uh, three fluently. Okay, name them. Luya, Swahili, English. Okay, the first mm-hmm. two are not real. 
<laughs> Ezzy, what would it sound like to say, you know, Andy's awesome in Swahili? We we don't have a word for Andy <laughs> being awesome in Swahili. <laughs> there are no Andys that are awesome. <laughs> no Andys that are awesome in Swahili. <laughs> uh, syntax error. Okay, so this question actually is directed specifically to Andy. You ready for this, Andy? Does it say that I'm awesome? It says, uh, why are you bald? No. <laughs> It says, your recent sermon was subpar at best. Oh, just, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> just ask the question. It's, it's just with, with regards in response to a sermon you preached uh, in mid-August. So the question, are you ready? Brings me to my question. It says, oh, you, by the way, by the way, she actually said something nice about my sermon. We don't need to talk but about it. But we don't need to talk we about it. We don't need to. Continue no, on. We'll just leave that out. So it says, Andrew, you told a story Andrew about... always throws me under the bus, man. It's unbelievable. Mm. And then he backs it up. Well, that's because there's no Andes that are awesome, right? <laughs> Right, Andrew? Even in Swahili. It's true. I, I never Swahili. wanted to be called Andy. Why not? I just ne- never liked it. You okay. know, and then I, I met it. Andy Steiger and was like, I'm glad that people call me Andrew. <clears throat> okay, so your question is? So, uh, how would you interpret, or, or you told a story, um, and, and this person became interested in how you would understand and interpret Matthew 16, 27, and 28, for the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will, who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. One of the... What's the text? Matthew 16, 27 to 28. So, so the, the question is, how do you refute this? Uh, as you're probably aware, atheists love this verse because they claim this is proof of, of Jesus telling a lie or being untruthful. So how do, you, how do you engage with this conversation on this text? One of the things that, if you've listened to the extra podcast very long, you've noticed that when we get questions in, we tend to do the same thing. We tend to back up and start like we just did and start reading, or we keep reading. And this is one of those texts where when you keep reading, it explains itself. And then the very next portion of Scripture is actually the Mount of Transfiguration. But what I... What I so why is, way, that, why is that important? Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get there. Because one of the things that I think is also helpful is you can see elsewhere that maybe one of the disciples that was there maybe talks about that. And in fact, we have that. In Second Peter uh, chapter uh, 1, uh, verse 16, we read uh, Peter explaining this. He says, we did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty, for he for he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the, majest- uh, the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. For we ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. Mm. And so here you have Peter now ref- referring back to the Mount of Transfiguration and Jesus coming in his glory with the angels. So your argument is that the line, which seems to be in question here, verse 28, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. There are those who are trying to interpret uh, the Son of Man coming in his kingdom as the second coming of Christ, but you're saying actually it's what follows in the Mount of Transfiguration the language of see the Son and Man coming coming in His kingdom. Exactly, you what? get this. You get this prefigured uh, image on the Mount of Transfiguration, which 
Peter himself thought of that way. Yeah, so it, and one of the mistakes I think a lot of people make when they read their Bibles is they just assume somebody like Matthew is haphazardly just trying to remember the different conversations right. and the different there's you know, no scenes. Artist, there's no artistry or any kind of like placement yeah. of oh, the Oh, I remember this conversation with Jesus, so I'll write that down. Uh, yeah. you know, no, he's making an argument, and he knows exactly what he's writing, and so right. it's not surprising then that he's following up with what has just been said. Right. Um, right. Where he's explaining it. Yep. And so, yeah, so that's exactly what I hold to. I mean, some people call this a... A partial preterist view. Ooh, there you go. That's a lovely little take there. How do you spell that? <laughs> P-R-E-T-E-R-I-S-T. Preterist. I'll Google it. You should. And that's that's actually a view that 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 I hold to. I think that it's I think it's helpful to know that when Jesus is referring to to different uh, you know you, you know we could say these different prophecies, whether it's the destruction of the kingdom or his coming again. So the destruction of the temple, you mean? Sorry, yeah, the sorry thank not, you. Yeah. Destruction of the temple, or the coming of the kingdom. You that these things are there are being fulfilled and will be fulfilled. That there's both yeah. the now and to come. Yeah. Okay, that's it, dude. He nailed that one. Nailed it. Everyone gives it the stamp of approval. No, no heresy. No. Okay. Well, yeah. <laughs> Except for the kingdom being destroyed. That it, part was a little bit dodgy. <laughs> It was like through the that was the white that was the white water of that answer, and then we came out the other end into the nice placid sea of Andy's awesome. Uh, and he did write a book, which uh, I recommend reading. Should have titled it "Everything Is Awesome." Oh wait, Lego mm-hmm. already took okay. that. Okay. <laughs> this next question that comes up, I, I find particularly interesting. Um, and so, last podcast, Jeff was talking about uh, the writers of the first couple of books of the Bible. You guys remember this? Yeah. Okay. Or writer. Writer. Okay. This yes. is where the question's going. And there's a lot of debate and speculation and conversation about who wrote them or, or how many or who or when. So my question is, does it even matter? This person's question is wondering, are these debates simply for the sake of knowledge and just sort of kind of puffed up knowledge? Or, or is, there, is there a purpose? Does is, is it help us somehow to advance the gospel um, and gain an, an understanding of the love of Christ? In a better, clearer way, or are we just arguing so for can the I, sake of it? Let me let me just warn uh, everybody who's listening against uh, questioning or belittling arguments between people who know more than you do about a particular subject. Now, I'm I'm in no way suggesting that that this is the most important subject that you should know. But the reason that we tend to think, oh, that's just so dumb, is because we don't actually have knowledge of the issues. So our ignorance is what's driving us to wanting to dismiss it. Now, I'm not suggesting that, that the, the, the fight or discussion over uh, the authorship of the Pentateuch is the most important issue that you're going to face. I totally disagree that it is. However, it is an important issue in that um, the tradition of the Church has held a particular thing. Uh, I think the New Testament talks about Moses speaking or writing some of these things. And so uh, modern scholars who are influenced heavily by the Enlightenment have raised lots of questions about whether or not that authorship of the first five books of the Bible is the way we've always understood it is legit. So they've come to the Bible with an air of skepticism and said, well, we can't really trust what the new, what, what those who went before us believed because they had certain presuppositions we don't agree with, and now we have certain presuppositions so uh, surely it must be authored by lots and lots of different people. And so th- they come to their conclusions, 
uh, based upon some questionable assumptions, and the people who are pushing back against them are trying to defend uh, a historic understanding of of the text and the authorship of that text uh, in a way that uh, it is both going to engage them and going to help the ch- church to have confidence in their in their Bibles, because that's ultimately what it's about, right? I mean, whether or not you can believe the Scriptures the way they're written or not. And so is it important, Paul? Is it important that people actually believe their Bibles? Of course it's important that people believe their Bibles. So when I read in the New Testament, Moses said this, I should be able to trust what the New Testament says about those sorts of things. Exactly. But these, these scholars don't trust that. Right. So there, there are scholars out there who um, are their, their field that they've chosen to uh, specialize in is New Testament scholarship uh, or biblical scholarship, Old Testament as well, uh, and, and they aren't actually Christians. And so what they're doing is they're, they go back and they, they look at things and they, they say, okay, well, this can't be... For instance, Moses couldn't have written the Pentateuch because in Deuteronomy it talks about Moses' death. Right. Now, so, uh, can, can I... These, these people don't... It doesn't mean that they have to be non-Christians. No, that's true. Like, because I've read quite but a few commentaries where, you know, a well-known evangelical will go on this particular book or whatever it might be. We're like, we're not 100% sure. Sure. Who wrote it? Yeah, so there are questions about, for example, Second Peter, as you quoted before. Right. Big questions about whether Peter actually wrote it. Or even Isaiah. Yeah, or how many Isaiahs there were. And by that, we mean how many redactors or editors were involved in the, in the accumulation of, of the books, yeah. Right, and so in the form of the Pentateuch that we have... Uh, we the Pentateuch have, is the first five books, yes, and we use Yes, the first five language. books of the Bible. So you do have a story of Moses' death. So how did Moses write that? Well, he, he didn't. Back from the grave. <laughs> exactly. But as, as the Pentateuch passed along... People read it, and they, they thought it was, somebody thought it was important to include that at the right. end. So th- does that mean that now that discounts the whole Pentateuch as being from Moses? No, it, it means that Moses wrote the original, and that there were certain things clarified. Right. It's throughout. a battle over the Bible, though. And so that's, I think the big picture I'm trying to say here is it's not, it's not just a, you know, how many angels on the head of a pen and... Which, by the way, if you ever want to look at the background of that debate, is actually more important than you might actually think. Yeah, that's an interesting one. But I mean, philosophically, it's a very much more important. But again, uh, it's a it's a battle and an issue over whether or not you can trust your Bible, and so it does have some some issue, yeah. you know, you know, like that. Because I mean, people come along now and they'll say, "Oh, Adam and Eve weren't real." Uh, well, I mean, you got the New Testament; it sure seems to make it sound like they were. Jesus seemed to think that Adam and Eve were real people. So, I mean, this does have some bearing on, on how we understand the New Testament and Jesus' understanding of his world and whether or not we in the 21st century in North America have just, you know, because we're so smart now, we've sorted it all out. And so, yeah, I, I believe the Bible can, can be trusted at every turn. Now, one of, the, one of the challenges that I've noticed, I mean, this, like this summer I, I preached from Isaiah. And so, you know, we'll have at times challenges when we're going through a piece of scripture and maybe the author is in question or there's confusion and we're just not quite sure how it all fits together. Uh, there's not time in a sermon to to bring up those kind of... How do you deal with that, Jeff, like when you come across those? Yeah, it's hard. Yeah, you have to you have to choose what to leave out. Um, we, we say in our sermon review groups that we, we're trying to bake a loaf of bread, not give people the, the wheat field. 
Uh, and there are lots of things out in the wheat field that could be included in the bread that we're baking, meaning the sermon, but they just have to be left out in the wheat field. And so there are lots and lots of issues that we leave, unfortunately, to the side. Uh, and it's not it's not uncommon from somebody. Why didn't you talk about that, or why didn't you bring this issue up? And 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 because in the end, I felt like the text was about this other thing, the overall thrust of of it. You give seriously, you give me a few hours, <clears throat> I'll do it. Martin Lloyd Jones used to preach, I don't know how many sermons on like one verse. Let's take the next word, <laughs> you know, and then he preached the whole thing. Or I could give you a commentary, which is the way some pe- people preach. I don't know, John MacArthur and others. I, I think that's the way that they approach the sermon. Is let me do a exegetical work for you in front of you about every word in the passage. And some people love that kind of stuff, but there's not a lot of application to it. It's just sort of, I mean, it's like reading a commentary. He's really engaging. So wouldn't you make a distinction between teaching and preaching? <clears throat> yeah, I tend to. I mean, I, I maybe it's an arbitrary distinction, but yeah, I'm I'm making the distinction that preaching is preaching is done for the edification of the people in, in a more forceful, uh, provocative. Uh, declarative way, whereas teaching is more of an informational piece in the sense that it's not that I'm not trying to edify or help people grow, it's just that I'm going to give you the five different options on a whatever, and it's on occasion in a sermon I'll give you five different options, but usually I, I won't give you all of my, I won't show all my work in terms of how I came mm-hmm. about to this conclusion exegetically. So I think I think sometimes people <clears throat> make the mistake of thinking that we don't know Maybe the issues that are going on with the passage that no, we're preaching, but you spend a lot of time looking at that text in the week, lots and lots and lots of it, and I, I mean upwards of twenty-five hours looking at it, <clears throat> and you come to conclusions that I, mean, I should be an expert in the passage, and so you can ask questions on that. But it's part of the reason we had this podcast started. We'd have another one called the Fourth Point mm-hmm. Podcast, which is an opportunity mm-hmm. for other pastors or other preachers to challenge the preacher or give them an opportunity to whatever talk about the thing. So it's good. So um, we've talked about this before. When we interpret a passage, Jeff, you have this, I find a very colorful image of, of a mountain, right? Mm. So particularly difficult passages are kind of this mountain, and it's covered by a mist or a fog or a haze, right? Which is kind of all these questions that are behind these um, interpretation, but also the background, the source, all <laughs> these things. Um, but do you maybe want to talk a little bit about your image of how this mountain slowly gets unveiled or uncovered? Uh, sure, you, you know uh, the more you the more you study uh, a passage in its historical context. So you do some history work, you do some cultural what we call cultural exegesis of the you know the the place that it was written in. John Stott wrote a book years ago called Between Two Worlds, which is the way that the, the he understood the preaching task because you have to be an expert in the world in which the text was written and an expert in the world in which you live, and you're trying to bridge these. You're trying to take what was written to these people all these days ago, understand the principles that are taught there about God, about the way He operates with His world, maybe the examples that He's setting with this, His interactions with these people, and then you're trying to bring those and apply those specifically to situations that people are facing today, right? And in that way, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So it's a challenge to do. Uh, as far as, like, uncovering the mist of the mountain, the, the more time you spend studying those particular issues, uh, you might read some commentaries, but usually I wait to do the commentaries until I've had a good long look at the passage. You know, I'm able to read it in Greek and Hebrew, and that helps because mm-hmm. I can understand maybe some of the nuances that are being brought to it by certain Greek verbal forms or 
-hmm. Hebrew verbal forms or something like, why does he use this particular word? It's not used anywhere else. Or maybe it's a very colorful word that he's borrowing from certain uh, other spheres. There's a lot of military language in the Bible, and that sometimes gives... uh, Mm. And I don't mean that about... There's military terms that are used for non-military purposes, and sometimes that gives color to the way... You understand it, and so the the mist starts to clear after a while. There are some still there are still some things at the end that you know you feel like oh, it's a bit of a toss up mm-hmm. about in some passages. Not most though. Quite honestly, the more you study, everybody around the table here, the more time Ezra, the more time you spend studying a passage of scripture, don't you come away at the end with a confidence in at least the interpretation you have of it because you've oh, yeah. done the work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it gets clearer and clearer the deeper you go, and the more time you spend thinking and praying about it and looking at it again and working the text. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. One of the and things by, that people need to understand, I think, is that is that we, you know, when we when we get together and we think about what what we want to preach, we don't get together. I don't I don't sit down and say, "Man, here's what my people need to hear. They need to hear about baptism. They need to hear about politics. They need to hear about." Those things might be in the back of our minds that, hey, this is sort of the pulse of our church at this moment, so we want to address some of these issues. But usually what happens is that we we are pushed around by the text instead of pushing the text around. So so we will go to a... <clears throat> we'll decide to do a series on 1 Corinthians or whatever, and a book of Acts, and we get what the text gives us that week. And so I always I giggle a little bit when people come and say, man, that's like so appropriate. These last four weeks have been so appropriate in my life. Well, that's evidence of the Spirit of God moving Amen. in your life. Mm-hmm. And show, and, and like I didn't plan that. He did. Mm-hmm. He planned it a long time ago. You bet. That did. we would preach about those issues on these weeks. Mm-hmm. It, it also thrusts us sometimes into weird situations where... We thought that the passage was going to be about this because, on a cursory reading of the passage, it seemed to indicate that that you know there was a particular idea in mind. But then, the more you get involved in the study of it, you're like, "Whoa, was I wrong?" You know. Or, or sometimes, you know, when we schedule our like we have our sermon scheduled for the year, and we know what we're going to preach on a specific day, and so you choose a text, and you think, "Oh, that text will work well. That series will work well over there." And then it's Mother's Day, and then you begin looking at the text and seeing what are some of the themes that the author is bringing forward. And you're like, yeah, there's a lot of "There mother, is no way I'm preaching this on Mother's, mother's Day." Getting killed or something. <laughs> you're like, "Um, yeah, uh, maybe we shouldn't do that." But mm-hmm. I like oftentimes it's it, it, yeah. I mean, like this week, for example, I was scheduled to preach Acts 19. One to seven, which great text about how uh, these these group of people who these group of guys who believed in the baptism of John but hadn't heard basically about Pentecost, they come to faith in Christ in the end and are baptized, experience the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which is the same thing that happened to the Jews in Acts two and the Gentiles in Acts ten. So there's a lot of theological import to that, uh, mm-hmm. which I've covered before in other sermons about uh, when we were dealing with Acts two, but I didn't talk about it this week just because, quite honestly, uh, I was very compelled to talk about leadership development through this, this the, the text I, I wanted to. And, and by adding that other piece, it would have been some weird piece of hybrid bread instead of, you know, to use that image of a loaf of bread that you, like, it just would be too weird. Mm-hmm. Uh, Andy had said to me before in our sermon preview stuff, oh, do one or two of those, do one of the two of those, right. <laughs> don't do both, because that's awful, right? It's going to be <laughs> terrible. And he's right, it will be. So, I mean, we're driven by the... T- my point is we're driven by the text of Scripture. We're driven by what the Bible's teaching us at particular points along the way. And so we feel like as a church, we're being steered by the Spirit of God speaking in His Word. 
Oh, but by the way, I think it might just be helpful for people when we're talking about translation work and we're talking about understanding the text. We're we're seeking to understand the intended meaning of the author. Right. We want mm-hmm. we want to hear what is the author saying, not what do I think it's saying. Right. Yeah. Right. So I'm not going to. I don't want to use the text as a tool. Hmm. I want to be the text's tool. And by text, you have to understand. I'm I'm understanding that as the spirit's tool because the spirit inspired the text and is speaking to me to the congregation through that passage now. So I want to be the tool of the Spirit through the text. I don't want to be have the Spirit and the text as my tool. And so bringing back to this question... Speaking of tools, Andrew. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Good segue. But bringing it back to this question, I think uh, we're all in agreement that kind of beating these passages and these historical and these... Um, the, the background and who wrote it and when and whether it was this guy or how many Isaiahs were there or all of these things... Would we, would you agree they will help unveil uncover they do. this mountain? Mm-hmm. Well, you have a deeper understanding of what's right. going on there and what the author intends. I mean, it's helpful to know the author if you know if you want to know what the author intends, right? Yeah. But that's what we're after is finding out what the author intended. It's helpful to know you know where the author was when they were writing. It's helpful to know to whom the author was writing. Mm-hmm. So I mean, all of these things kind of provide an image or a background that give you. An understanding of their intent, the language they were using, the context in which they were living, yeah. the circumstances we, they yeah, were facing, and, all those things. And by the way, we do this all the time. Mm-hmm. I mean, every conversation we have, we're applying a hermeneutic. You know, we're implying we we use different interpretive methods to understand what's the intended meaning that of the, every of, author, of every and author. author, like this. Yeah, we instinctively do it, right? So, yeah. for some reason, when we come to the Bible, we kind of get all screwed well, it's up. It's a little bit harder because it's written it's written down, right? You know when I'm being sarcastic. Well, some people don't, right? And by the way, I'm most of the time I'm being sarcastic. <laughs> but most of people, I mean, a lot of people can just tell instinctively by the tone of my voice or the or the look on my face or something like that. In the Bible it's a little bit hard, harder because you don't have that those nonverbal cues. But you can still do this with written text. You know that when you're reading a newspaper, you're supposed to take what it's saying literally. You're spo- I mean, you are, but if you're reading a poem, like we were sitting down doing a poetry reading at the coffee house and Paul were to stand up with his weird beard thing and start talking in his hipster out- <laughs> voice. With his hot right? water. Right. But we would understand that the images that he's using aren't literal when he compares himself to a fuzzy bunny jumping through the, through the, through the meadow. That, that's not a literal image for him. He, did, he didn't actually transform into, into a bunny and become that. So you see what I mean? Like, that's what yeah. Andy's saying, is that we, we have these, we, we just know. We know uh, there's a certain even language that we use in football games or mm-hmm. soccer. Like, there's a sports language that's used, and so we give certain passes and understanding to that kind of thing. Whereas if you wrote down what a sports commentator was saying, something, and you gave it to people like aliens, oh dear. they'd be like, what? <laughs> what does this mean? What? Yeah. <laughs> right. I, I, I fully agree, and I can really relate with this, this, this um, listener's kind of perspective on things because he's looking at it and saying, hey, people are talking about and hashing out these issues. Are we just splitting hairs or, or are they really significant? I, I can relate because there's been times where I wonder the same thing. And if you turn on the TV and you watch any, seems like any sports channel, whenever there's no game, you get these you get these analysts who do the same thing, right? They, they break down teams and stats and mm-hmm. they compare other years. And it, you watch this and if you're not terribly into sports or you're not as educated as these folks, they're just these talking heads and we they go on and on and on and and um i i get frustrated with that and i think i think some people um they wonder if it's the same type of thing with with when we unpack um books of the bible the same way um so i think it's a very good question 
Uh, let's move on. I think this one uh, relates to what we talked about in episode 225. Uh, you made some comments, Jeff, about Christian art, which I think... Which is often neither Christian nor art. <laughs> Good point. Um, this, this gets Have, at... I used that joke before. <laughs> I didn't, the last one. So if that's the second time you heard it, just get ready. It's coming more often than that. Write that down. <laughs> that's good. That's a good word. It's a good joke. Why do we place uh, more more importance on the content rather than the rather than the form of Christian art? Because I, I'm with you. I think sometimes it's Christian art in quotes is neither Christian nor art. Sometimes because we've sort of it's sort of this weird kind of hybrid. It can't seem to be regular art. It has to somehow be Christian in in, in the way it in its message or in its content or something. But this question asks. Um, what, why do we? Why is it so much more important the content rather than the form of the art? Well, and and I think the the question also has an example. He, he says uh, we wouldn't just build a house just for the sake of putting a roof over somebody's head and not care about like how we build that house. The house has to be built in a specific way. So go. Um. Well, I'm I'm going to ask a question of the question in true Jesus fashion. Uh, I would I, I want to say though I think that uh, I, I'm asking is that just with Christian art? Because I think every artist uh, cares a lot about their content of the art. Just because mm-hmm. you and I don't care about the content, like you say, so, so you go to a movie, you see the film, and you have an issue it, like like a lot of people are just into what it looks like. Um, but the artist cares an awful lot about the meaning. They care way more than you do, right? You you, you, yep. you, you, you're sitting down and they care, of course, about what it looks like. There's no mm-hmm. question about that, right? When Tarantino does all his violent scenes and stuff, he obviously cares about what it looks like, but he's trying to say something through the form. He's trying to, there's a content to the, to his choices. There's always a message being Right. And this is, this is part of the thing is that I, I think, that content is always an important aspect, especially in Christian art, because uh, we are Christians who are about we are about content. We're about the message of of the gospel, uh, and so we want we want there to be meaning in what in what we do. So I I guess what I'm saying is I I'm not I don't want to excuse any kind of art whether it's Christian or not from the content piece, and I'm not sure I totally agree with the dichotomy to say well you either do content or you do form I. I think I think they do both absolutely, and I think the questioner probably agrees with me at that point, saying, "Yeah, yeah, we do, yeah, we do both." Um, if if by this he he means, um, why is it that we don't care as much about how things look? Um, and that's I think it's because uh, in some ways we've cut off certain aspects of the human experience from what we're allowed to express. Do you understand? That's what I was trying to say the other day, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, the Christian. If you're in certain Christian settings, you're not allowed to talk much about suffering because by talking about it, you give credence to it and you create a reality. I'm not talking about word faith movement. Mm-hmm. So if you believe mm-hmm. if you believe that kind of thing, well, you're not going to do any paintings about it, are you? Or a movie or about it, or write songs about suffering? You're not. I mean, in the Christian culture at large, <clears throat> we don't really like lament. We just don't in the West. You're supposed to always be happy, Paul. Happy, Paul. 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 Why are you not happy? What's wrong with you? Are you not feeling happy? Happy, you need to be happier. Oh, sorry, you're going to jump in there because you're not happy about what I'm doing? Oh, oh. As you can tell, it's hard to jump in when Jeff speaks. Oh, I'm, does that make you unhappy? <laughs> no, it just makes me quiet. There, there's a level of authenticity and, and honest 
darkness that's missing right. from a lot of Christian art. Right. So like I'm just saying that there's this there's this uh, we in order for car, for us to to use all sorts of different forms we need to be willing to investigate all sorts of other and, and all sorts of other human experiences and stuff and the Christian church has not always been open to all of them. Mm-hmm. I think this is particularly interesting when you think of Christian music, because even th- that term Christian music, does it mean the song is Christian? Does it mean the message is Christian? Does it mean the people are Christian? Does it mean they can be Christian people making is it content, right? non-Christian music? I would I would I always assume it's content, but if you think about the phrase, it's kind of a, it's kind of funny because the only beings or or things that can be Christian are humans. Yeah. So to say Christian music is kind of like, well, so is it Christ, just, is it music done by Christians with a Christian content? That's what I would assume. Because would you say you could have a bunch of faithful God-fearing Bible loving. savvy lo- Christ-loving believers who make music that that they don't sing about Jesus? Yep. Is that Christian right. music? Right. So for instance, I have a friend who it's music is music by Christians. I have a friend who uh, his form of art is animation and digital effects, and he works in he works on big Hollywood movies. And so uh, now he's a Christian. He works on these movies. These movies are far from uh, being Christian movies. Um, they are they're not promoting a Christian worldview. Although some of them you watch and you can see maybe hints at at the the longing in the human heart for for something. But uh, the movies he works on are not expressly Christian. The directors aren't Christian. Uh, he happens to be a Christian working in the secular uh, world in the Hollywood entertainment industry. And, and from talks with him, he's having an, an effect by talking with people there. And, and he is hoping to... No, I'm not letting Jeff cut in. Uh, but <laughs> but um, he's hoping to have, have an effect through his art. He... he, he he does his art with a clean conscience, and you know, the, yeah, just, go ahead. Just to jump in here, I think there's a lot of there's a lot of art that's done by non-Christian that by non-Christians that has a that has a Christian message. So there's certain movies that you'd watch and you'd say, you know what, there is a redemption story in this movie. There's something that the Christ, there's a question that the Christian needs to. To be asking that movie is asking a question that Christians should be asking. So, Isn't that a great part of the common grace of God? You like bet. I, this is what I b- want. That I, there is a wonderful theological category that we have that is mm-hmm. often rarely explored and embraced. Mm-hmm. I mean, we we instinctively agree with it, but but we don't talk about it much. It's common grace. It's the fact that everybody's made in the image of God, and so because they're made in the image of God, they sometimes ex- in beautiful and magnificent ways evidence that image through the art they make through the through mm-hmm. the things they do mm-hmm. i mean and whether you're christian or not there are these wonderful acts of compassion and kindness and beauty that are pro- created by people who are not believing and i thank god seriously i do i thank god when there's mm-hmm. when i see a movie like life of pi for example if mm-hmm. you ever watch this film it is mm-hmm. it's a beautiful film it's the the message is not christian the message in the end is basically espousing a material, materialist universe. It's actually a mm-hmm. profound statement about what the way the, the world at large believes. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. but but it it, it you know the the the, the, the pictures, colors and the, the color is yeah. phenomenal. I mean, we, I'm going to go watch Star Wars. I'm not a Buddhist, 
but I'm going to go watch mm-hmm. Star Wars and I'm going to glory in the CGI and the ability of the storyteller and ah, it's fantastic stuff. The I challenge mean, is though is was when the Christian doesn't understand what they're seeing. This this is the part that frustrates me though. No, I don't know. I don't know if I would say that the Christian doesn't understand. I think the Christian puts his brain checks his brain at the door yeah. coming in and just <clears throat> engages without thinking critically so, about so this what is, they just want. This is an example, though, of, of the categories that the, the, um, the questioner was bringing up. Here are a bunch of Christians who are engaging with and, and enjoying the form and not the content, right? Mm-hmm. So that, this is where I'm like, I'm not, I'm not sure... I'm not sure Christians generally only only get into content and not form because when we go and watch movies, right. that's largely what we're into is just the form. Right? Did better you be good. see the CGI yeah. on that? That thing looked real, or or the artwork on that, or the acting on that. Look how wonderfully they played that role. Mm. But I mean, because we could even take things like let's take Raphael's fresco or frescoes. I I think of like the School of Athens or something like that. I don't know if you've ever seen mm-hmm. his other works, but I've had fresca. He's he's doing both, right? I mean, you could mm-hmm. glory in oh man, it's so great how he does a fresco, right? But at the same time, there's content to what he's seeking to communicate right. that both are taking place, right? And that, that both are part of the art. I guess where I get frustrated with Christians is where they get so caught up in the form they forget that there's content being communicated. There's a message mm-hmm. being communicated, right? And the, and and sometimes it's flipped. That sometimes they get so much caught up in the content yeah. that they don't they don't focus enough on the form. Right. They recognize that actually the content's so good that the form should actually match the goodness of the content. Right. Mm-hmm. Great movies, great uh, paintings, great sculptures, great uh, poems, great writing mm. mixes both form and content. You know it, especially when you write. When you read someone who's written really well. Like you feel it in your bones, how wonderfully the prose works. It's just mm-hmm. it flows, mm-hmm. and you're like, "Wow, I could read yeah. you all day." So when you say mm-hmm. then that Christians currently, in the making of art, we mm-hmm. tend to be to excel in the content, not in the form, or we try to. Excel I think that in the, the questioner is saying that we excel in the content and not the form as much. That's what, yeah, that's what I'm What's interesting is that we rejoice more in the form than the content when we go outside Mm. the walls of the church (laughs) and watch regular films or other things like that. We we enjoy the beauty. So yeah, yeah, we should should enjoy both, and they should both be excellent. We're all agreed? Agreed. And I would say that uh, Christian music, but movies especially, and I say Christian with little bunny finger quotes with my fingers that you can't see. Uh, They've come a long way because I grew up, and I mean, not that long ago. I'm much younger than all of you guys here. Uh, Much younger. How old old are you? No, he's a lot younger. He's like 20. 18. You're like 19. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. No, I'm older than that. But uh, I grew up watching, I mean, my mom always bought, just like she would get these things in the mail, whatever, these little mail outs. She would order stuff from different Christian publications or, or focus on the family. So I grew up with just like cheesy Christian movie after cheesy Christian movie after uh, Charity Church Mouse, after cheesy Christian After what? CD. You guys don't know Charity Church Mouse? No. It's from Kids Praise. Yeah. Uh, you know Salty? Paul still no, I don't, I don't actually know. You, that's right. You grew up in a mainline liberal denomination. Salty the songbook, buddy. <laughs> don't amend anybody? Don't amend Gerbert? Is this I, what I missed? Oh, yeah. I missed yes. Salty. <laughs> yes. Salty. You definitely missed Salty. Salty the songbook. Where's that name? Google come? it. Salty. It's with a P. It's like P-S-A-L. Salty. Oh, man, no. Yeah, I'll kid you It not. sure is. <laughs> Google it. Gerbert. It list, the list goes on. So. I look at it and I see some other, you know, more recent movies that are coming out that are really, you know, A, strong in content and then strong in form as well. Um, I mean, Courageous comes to mind. Yeah, there you go. Who? He pulled up a picture of Salty. Who? Oh, my goodness. It's a book. 
It's a singing song. He is the singing song. Come Ezra, on, where have you been? Ezra, have you ever heard of Pasalti? I have no <laughs> idea who this is. Pasalti. I don't know who Pasalti is. <laughs> For those of you who aren't familiar with Salty, <laughs> I have I, no idea. Salty and I go way back, and uh, he's got a special spot in my heart, so I, I recommend. And, and, and any anybody listening to this that grew up in Abbotsford, <laughs> in the MB evangelical community knows exactly and they're smiling what and nodding and they're about. like oh salty or the donut man i mean the list just Andy, goes do on. you know salty oh dear <laughs> i have no oh so goodness. all that to say Crocker, Christian do you know music. salty oh wow <laughs> see jeff is just you and i, <laughs> I know. wow but christian christian art uh songs music film especially they've come a long way and so i i, I uh yeah i think we've had some good discussions about that but unfortunately or fortunately depending on your outlook uh, that's all we have today for time, and we've, well, we haven't run out of questions, but we've run out of questions for today. So thanks for listening. Uh, go Blue Jays, or I hear the Seahawks are, uh, you know, big team around. They're mediocre. They're okay. And, oh, but they won. Yeah, well. And go Chelsea, go Arsenal. You go Salty. Chelsea. Go, salty. <laughs> go Giants. Yeah. You're a Giants fan. Go Giants. Go Donut Man. Go Salty. Talk Aren't to you later. Thank you. Thank you.